0: we spend six to nine months choosing the problem before even starting a company. And I'll go through a dozen, two dozen potential problems. Like when I started Outlier, which was this AI company analyzing data sets, it was one of two dozen ideas that ranged from agricultural technology through education and FinTech. And I was looking for problems that were really profound that were getting bigger as time went on, where I felt like I had some ability to actually come in and find a solution that would really change the industry.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Elevate Podcast. I'm your host, Delaney McGuire. And here on the show, we're all about products and people that make an impact. We talk to entrepreneurs, VCs, product leaders, executives, all the above, anyone who is building a company, a mission, a product designed to make the world a better place and also create tons of income and financial wealth as well. Here on the show today, we have Sean Burns. Sean has been a founder for the last 20 years. He launched both Flurry and Outlier AI, Flurry being acquired by Yahoo in 2014, and Outlier being a leader in the automated business analytics space acquired in 2022. He is now a coach, advisor, and investor. Overall, Sean really understands growing and scaling technology businesses, so we are going to dive in and hopefully get some incredible insights all about how to grow and scale as a business, but also as a leader. He's done so much impactful work in terms of coaching, executive coaching, strategic coaching. So we're going to dive into that as well. Let's jump straight in. All right, Sean, welcome to the show.
0: Thanks for having me,
1: man. Glad to be here. Awesome. I did just introduce you to the audience for even a bit more context. I saw your one of your recent posts be shared via Lenny's podcast and I dove in and read it and thought you had some really valuable insights and reached out and now we're here. So really excited to get to dive in with you today.
0: Hey, I'm glad people are listening to all my random rantings. It's great. I'm happy to provide you with my unfiltered opinion as worthless as it may be.
1: It's all fantastic. Very cool. Why don't you, my intro surely didn't do it justice. So would you just set the context and give us a little background on yourself? What are some things you're really proud of and where are you at today?
0: Yeah, I've been a founder of companies for about 20 years. Some of them are more successful than others. Flurry was the most successful. It became the largest analytics and ads platform for mobile apps over the 10-year journey we were on. So if you have an iPhone or an Android phone, there's Flurry software on there somewhere. It was a great ride through the heydays of the mobile explosion. I started AI companies like Outlier today, which is my most recent company. Along the way, I've tried to give back. The tech community is great and that so many people help me along my journey. I feel like it's my job to try to help them. So for the past 10 years or so, I've been coaching founders, investing in some founders. I read a newsletter called The Breaking Point, Breaking Point on Substack, and a podcast called The Startup Help Desk, all to try to help share my learnings, my knowledge with other people going through the same journeys that I've been on. And I feel like honestly, in the tech community, it's great that people share their experience in the way that we do. So I'm on a mission now to try to share as much as I can.
1: I love that off topic question, but do you think it's the tech space has come a long way since you first got started in terms of how open people are? Do you think there's more of that now with social media? when I got
0: started in tech, it was the dot-com bubble had burst. So we're in the rubble of that kind of collapse. In those days, venture capital was very hard to raise. And even if you raised it, the VCs were expecting to replace you as a CEO. So the very first financing round I ever raised was in 2006. And during the fundraising process, a bunch of the VCs asked me like, hey, is it okay if we just kick you out as a CEO and bring in a new CEO right now? Very (laughs) first round of funding. You fast forward to today, we have things like cloud computing, we don't have to rack servers anymore. We have VCs that are former founders. Back then, every VC was either an investment bank or a management consultant. There were no founders that were investors. And as a result, more founders are running their companies all the way through. We have lots of examples of success. We have programs like Y Combinator that exist. There's so much more support to get your idea into reality than it was back then. And it's so much cheaper to do that the world's changed. At the same time, there's problems. It's harder to stand out. Back then, just standing up a website was a big accomplishment and a huge (laughs) moat. Now you can set up a website in about 35 seconds. Back then, I got my graduate degree in artificial intelligence 20 years ago. And back then, we used to joke that the kind of technologies we were working on wouldn't be relevant in our lifetimes, that our children's children would be the ones to take it out. Now, AI is everywhere, man. I could have AI write my blog posts, AI does all my Christmas cards, AI does everything for me. So... The world's come a long way. One thing that has not changed, though, is most of the content about startups is written by VCs because they're the ones who have the time to sit down and write blog posts. There's still a lack of knowledge being shared among founders and among leaders about the lessons we've learned and what we've been through. And that needs to
1: change. We're here for this podcast. We're going to chip away at at it. Yeah, that's right. I love that. Very cool. So, Lyle, let's dive in a little bit with Flurry and... Outlier AI and any others that you want to speak to, what are some, just the top few most proud accomplishments that
0: you've had? I think finding product market fit is a big accomplishment. People have lots of things about how you find it, but let's be honest, it's really rare to find product market fit. It can take years. Most people never find it. I am first proud that both my companies, we didn't have an easy path to finding it. You're talking about years of struggle, years of grinding. And we had a vision. We started with a problem and we ended up really finding something electric. In the case of Flurry, we actually started out as as an app developer ourselves. And eventually we realized we were one of the most successful app developers of the pre-iPhone era, which I know, were there apps pre-iPhone? It turns (laughs) out there were. Apparently, But we we saw a bigger opportunity in taking our platform for analytics and advertising and making that the product. And we made that pivot at the right time. And then we found explosive hyper growth as the mobile ecosystem exploded. In case of Outlier, when I first started Outlier, we were, the goal was to use AI to look at large data sets to find insights automatically. So essentially imagine a virtual analyst that can look through all your data all the time. I would tell that to investors and they look at me funny and told me it sounded like science fiction. There's no way that would work. But over a year, we spent a few years grinding away. We found that model and today... Everyone accepts that AI can do these things. And it's obvious that would be a business model. So first, I'm most proud that we grounded out, that we found product market fit across these companies. The second thing I'm most proud of is all of my companies have been category creation companies. So there's, in my opinion, two kinds of startups. So you're building something to replace an existing solution that's better or cheaper, or you're creating a new category a kind of product people haven't seen before. They don't know how it should work. I've always gravitated towards the latter, Let's build some new categories. Let's really push the envelope, but it's a harder route, right? You can't just build a good product. You have to educate people about, Hey, this solution even exists. So in the case of Flurry, nobody knew what a mobile app analytics were. In fact, the most popular request I used to get was, Hey, how do I measure the page views in my app? Because people are used to using page views to measure websites. but of course you could use it for apps. I had to sit down and explain to people apps didn't have pages. That wasn't how it worked. And so new category creation is hard, but if it works, man, it's magic. And I've been lucky enough to find success there multiple times. And I think the third is I got, I started being a founder for a very unusual reason. I know a lot of people become founders because they want to get rich or they want to be famous. or they want to be powerful or some combination of those three. I just, I really wanted to work somewhere that saw me as a person. I had a lot of jobs where they just, the company treats you like a robot that like their salary goes in one side and productivity comes out the other. And, I wanted to be somewhere I looked forward to going in the morning, That I felt like my team was there with me. We were challenging each other and learning and growing. And eventually I decided if I wanted to work somewhere like that, I'd have to start it myself. And all of my companies have been that way. And to hear your employees tell you that your company, your startup company that's growing fast is the best job they've ever had. It means a lot in a world that's unfortunately far too uncommon.
1: I love that. So much good stuff to dive into there. Okay, so let's start with product market fit and forgive me in advance because obviously all companies and niches are gonna be a little different. <laughs> the intention here is to figure out how we can extrapolate some of these learnings and generalize them. So let's say you take that entrepreneur who's just built an MVP of a some sort of consumer facing product that they're bringing to market. They don't have an insane amount of funding. Maybe they're considering going out and getting it, like how? if you had to create a generalized blueprint for finding that early product market fit, what would be your encouragement?
0: So the first thing, and this to your point, a lot of people build that MVP. I'm like, okay, timeout, let's take a step back. What problem are we solving, right? If this is an enterprise product, what is the burning need that somebody needs you to solve? It's a consumer app that also, what's the problem? What do consumers need? What are you going to give them? Because we want to fall in love with the problem, not the solution. The solution will change. The way we solve it will evolve, but the problem that we start with is the difference between success and failure. Do we understand the problem? Is it a really acute need? Is it something people would use all the time if we had a solution, whatever that solution might look like. And I find that most founders spend a lot of time wanting to build and very little time defining the problem. I always spend six to nine months choosing the problem before even starting a company. And I'll go through a dozen, two dozen potential problems Like when I started Outlier, which was this AI company analyzing data sets, it was one of two dozen ideas that ranged from agricultural technology through education and fintech. And I was looking for problems that were really profound, that were getting bigger as time went on, where I felt like I had some ability to actually come in and find a solution that would really change the industry. So, if you choose a really good problem, it turns out everything else is a lot easier, but many people rush. They're so eager to get started, they just choose the first problem they find they run with it. But once we have that problem, the next thing to do is figure out, okay, what are the characteristics of a good solution? Let's not even think about the solution yet. Is it a mobile app? Is it a web service? Is it a chat? I'm not worry about that later. What are the characteristics of success? And that means like what does it have to do to really catch the attention of the person who will use it? What stands out in their mind? Everybody's busy. We don't pay attention to a lot of stuff going on, so what does it need to do to cut through the noise? The second is, great, okay, we're going to have this product catch somebody's attention. How much are they going to pay for it? Or for the consumer app, how much are they going to use it? They're going to pay with their attention. Can we make sure that we have something where, if it's successful, we'll make enough to make it worthwhile? And the third part is, do we have some way to reach these people? So if we're selling to consumers or we're selling to CMOs at Fortune 500, it doesn't matter who we're selling it to. Can we reach them at scale? Do we have a path to reach 10 of them? Great. Everybody can find 10. (laughs) Can you reach 10,000, 100,000? Is there a way to do it? I cannot tell you how many companies are like, we have the best solution ever for chief financial officers. We just, we can't figure out how to reach them. Okay. Then you don't really have a solution. If you can't reach them, who cares? So let's assume we have a good problem and we have answers to these questions. We know who we're selling to. They're going to pay us enough to make it worth it. We know how to scale it up. We know how to reach them. Now we're going to think about solutions. Now we're going to think about products. But the product we build is going to be genetically designed to go through whatever channel we have to reach those people. Because we need to make sure that however we're going to reach them, this thing is essentially very well designed to fit into that slot perfectly. We're not going to take what we want to build and try to stuff it in there. We're gonna design a solution that's des- that's meant to go through that channel. So a consumer product has to be zero effort onboarding, right? They mm-hmm. have to be able to use it within five seconds, love it and wanna come back to it in 30 seconds later. Talking about enterprise service product, depends how we're selling it. Are we selling it to executives? If so, better be really flashy to get their attention. They see dozens of products a day. It has to be something where we can, they can get value out of it in days, maybe months. So we're going to, whatever solution we're going to start building, and then we're going to build a bunch of them, right? Three, four, five different possible solutions of the problem. We're going to test those. Those are going to suck and they're not going to work. We're going to throw those away and build a few more. And we're going to iterate. We're going to build and test and build and test and build and test until we have that lightning where somebody's wow, this is awesome. And then we're going to lean into it. And by the way, at that point, all those things we did, we defined the problem, we defined the characteristics of the right solution, we built lots of solutions, we iterated. All that got us to the starting line. Now we're ready to get started. Now we know what problem we're solving for who, we know what the solution will look like. Now let's get started where most people think the beginning is. We had to do all of that work just to get to the starting line. Now we're ready to go. And this is the problem. Most people try to compact all of that Down to a few days. Let's go build an MVP. Let's go to market, lean startup, go. That process I just described, that could take years.
1: Wow. Yeah, that's awesome. I already know that I'm going to re-listen back to the last three minutes of this podcast probably multiple times. And it is really interesting because myself, the first time I wanted to launch and test out a product, I went and I hit up YouTube, eventually stumbled into the YC content for, hey, you want to start a company? Here's some free content. And you're right that those first stages are maybe 10% of the total curriculum and you consume them. And then the last 80% is actually building and selling or growing a product. So you assume it should take just about as much time. No one actually frames it in that way, but that does make so much sense that it will save you so much time. Like it it feels like everyone has a problem trying to market and sell their thing, but if they really spent that much time, that could be an effortless process if everything else was aligned.
0: it goes back to what we said before, All if you're an investor, you're in YC or you're in VC, companies when they've been through all this, right? And some people take the hard route, they don't do this, but there's so many startup companies, some break through and find something. So from your perspective as an investor, that starting line we talked about is the first time people. You're not dealing with everything that happens before that. And even if you're a founder, how many times do you go through this? How many companies do you start in your whole life? Five, maybe two, maybe one. So what ends up happening is all the content is about after that starting line. It's great, you found a customer, you found a product, here's how you scale, here's how you raise money. Nobody talks about everything it takes to get to the starting line because either you don't go through it often enough to actually write it down or the people who have the time to write it, they don't see it. They're waiting for you to get through that. It's like, in some ways you think about the VCs, they're waiting on the far side of the swamp with a bunch of towels and some bottles of water to help us run a race but we got to get through the swamp to even get there. Once we got out of the swamp, they're like, excellent. Congratulations. Let's get started (laughs) on the race. And we're like, hey, we were just slogging through the bog back there. What's going on?
1: Could have gave us a hand. Could have floated a raft our way.
0: It would have been nice.
1: Uh, I love that. Okay. So maybe the next logical step in this really long journey. So you make it through that initial phase. You're actually at the starting line. What differentiates the successful versus the unsuccessful in the ability to raise that initial? Actually, even when is a company ready to take on or start looking for capital in general? I know that's, again, a pretty vague question that could be broken down in a million different examples, <laughs> but if you had to create a general checklist for someone, maybe even just introspective questions to ask. Should I approach bootstrapping this? There's the whole like indie hacker hype these days. It's really easy to get outsourced resources from different countries and whatnot. What is your general consensus or maybe even just your, the flavor of approach you like in terms of those early stages where you're not really sure if you're ready for capital or not? Here's how
0: you think about it. Let's put ourselves in the seat of the investors, right? If an investor gives you money, why are they doing that? They're not giving you the money because you need it. That's certainly not why. They're giving it to you because they believe over 10 years, you might turn that into a much larger value, 100, 1,000 times the money they're giving you. So if you think about it that way, whether or not you raise money when you first have the idea or after you have a product or after you have customers or after you have revenue is a detail because those are all steps along a much longer journey. Even if those steps take a year or 18 months or two years, it's still a small fraction of the 10-year journey you're on. So the questions of being at what point in that journey can you make the case to investors that over t- in 10 years, this is the best investment they could possibly make, that investing today in 10 years would be the most valuable thing. If you can make that case on day one with nothing more than a PowerPoint presentation, that's fine. Most of the time, that's not enough. So maybe you need a product or a prototype. Most of the time, that's not enough. You need enough evidence to make the case you're trying to make. If you're a repeat founder who's done it before, maybe you can get away with raising earlier than someone else because they look at your track record. They give you more credibility. That 10-year vision seems less, a lot less crazy from somebody who's been on it before. But the businesses vary. So for example, if you look at pharmaceuticals, which is an active area of VC, The trajectory of a pharmaceutical is very different than, say, a software company. Partly, it's because software companies need less money. It's also really easy to build a demo of a software product. So it's rare that people are raising money without even a demo. And now as the market's turning, we're talking here, mid-2023, the VC market's contracted. It's very rare people are raising if they don't have proof of revenue and growth rates and they really have strong traction. So it also depends on the macro environment. Right in 2021, all you had to do was like put up your hand and somebody threw money at you, as far as I could tell. Like it was crazy. These days, they're like that same company hey, do you have 2 million in revenue growing 50% year over year? Excellent. We will buy 50% of your company for $5. (laughs) And so it's the macro environment changes too. So, all that being said, what matters is the perspective of the investors. It doesn't matter when you think you need the money, it doesn't matter how great you think your business is going to be. It matters what you need to do to make the case to those investors that they should invest. And to make it even worse, let's think it through for a second. If you're a professional investor, which at this point, everybody's a professional investor. See, it doesn't matter. You're going to see on average five or six pitches a day, every day, every week, every month, all year, which means that if we have an idea and we want to pitch that investor, the hardest part is actually not convincing them to invest. The hardest part is getting to even remember who we are. How do we stand out in their minds? So at the end of the day, they even remember our pitch End of the week. They even remember what we said. So the questions of being, how do we stand out in their mind? So we are the best company they saw all month. If you're a pre-seed investor, you're probably doing a handful of investments a month, if you're talking about like a seed or even a you get to series A stage, they do a few investments a year. How do we make sure that we're the one they remember the pitch from? So we even have a follow-up pitch and how much traction you need to make that happen. Depends on your business. If you're building hardware, it's probably a high bar. If you're building FinTech software, it's probably a lower bar. If you're building generative AI, the bar is so low you could step over it if you're not careful. <laughs> so it depends also on that perspective. But again, the key question is, when do you have something that's so compelling, a vision for the next 10 years that's so amazing, that's so credible with either whatever traction evidence you have or your personal vision or whatever, that investors I have to do this deal that these hundreds of other deals that I'm going to see, the founders are equally motivated, equally as convinced that they are the future. Of them, this one is the one I have to do. Whenever you get to that point, that's when you should fundraise.
1: I love that. I'm just genuinely curious. Do you have a story either from yourself or a pitch you've seen that stands out as like they crush that in their approach outside of the product itself, but the way they told the story?
0: First, you should, my personal opinion, fundraising is very hard. It's just really hard because as a founder, you've invested yourself in this and almost universally you hear, no, the only saving grace is all you need is one investor that says yes. As an example, in my whole career, I don't remember how many dozens of rounds of venture financing I've raised almost universally. I've gotten one term sheet from dozens and dozens of meetings in very few cases. I've gotten more than one and a few cases been preemptive, but universally speaking, it's a grind. So even if you do this really well, partly it's not up to you. It's up to the investor and what they're listening for. So I'll give you a few examples of really pitches that I thought were interesting. One was the very first pitch from LaunchDarkly, which today is a multi-billion dollar unicorn. I remember was at the the Alchemist Accelerator demo day. And a lot of people were very skeptical of what's LaunchDarkly today as a feature flagging platform. But back then, the pitch wasn't as crisp. And one of the things that was interesting about the Alchemist Accelerator was that their model for Demo Day was a customer of yours is supposed to pitch for you. So unlike YC Demo Day, where you get to pitch yourself, you're supposed to have a customer kind of do the pitch on your behalf. It was a really interesting model, but LaunchDarkly hadn't, didn't have any customers yet. And, and so their pitch ostensibly wouldn't have been as powerful, but they really nailed it. I think they they were talking to a future that they believed was going to happen. And they had a confidence, especially Edith. If you've ever seen Edith, the CEO of Launch Darkly? she's amazingly powerful. She was just basically, this is the future. This is just how it's going to be. And that confidence and the clarity of that vision, it stands out. There's no hedging. There's no compromise. It's like, this is where things are going. And you can either believe it or not. I don't care. It's just, this is how it's going. Incidentally enough, Edith is also like, a long, like a 100 mile marathon runner, one of the ultra marathons, which is probably not a complete coincidence. A second pitch that stands out in my mind, there's a company called MassGen. They make a a platform where if you go to a stadium and you go to concessions, you get a hot dog and a drink. You could go to a person at a register that that kind of tallies up what you're doing. They make a machine where you just slide your tray under and it recognizes everything on your tray and it charges you automatically which is a hard problem if you think about it in terms of AI because there's no barcodes to read. It's like, this is the hot dog and this is the drink and these are cheesy fries, but they figured it out. And I remember their YC Demo Day pitch, everyone in the audience was super skeptical because it sounds like a hard slog. It sounds like a difficult, like we're building hardware that's going to recognize these weird shapes and concessions and who's going to buy it and how fast can you grow? At the very end of their pitch, they were like, we just signed a $100 million LOI to deploy this in the largest stadium network in the US. And wow. everybody went dead silent. And it was like one of those mic drop moments where what they did was they told you what they were doing. They let the suspense grow. And then they were like, it's real in a way that you didn't believe it was real. Yep. And then they just dropped their mic and walked off the stage. It was a magical moment in their pitch. Those two stand out. There's more, but a lot of it comes out of these are the things that resonate with me as an investor. Other people might have other stuff.
1: Yeah. I love that. I think it's fantastic to call out and be preemptive and letting people know that it's going to be really emotionally challenging to go through that process and set that expectation. Probably try to find a positive of okay, I got a rep it. Can I learn something from that? Can yeah. I refine? Can I get a little better? Let, see,
0: that's the problem with fundraising, and that's why it's a difficult experience. If you're selling, let's say you're an enterprise software company, you're selling. you're know, you going to go into these sales meetings, you get feedback from customers. You're like, hey, listen, do you have this problem? Yes, I have this problem. Do you want a solution? Yes, I want the solution. Here's my solution. Do you think this would solve the problem for you? Now that customer doesn't always tell you the truth, but you get a general sense of whether or not it does meet their problem, if it meets their expectations, that they're willing to buy it. If you pitch a venture investor and they're not going to give you honest feedback, The most common feedback that you'll get from venture investors, it's early for us, which is code for, I'm not going to invest, but I'm not going to tell you why. Or they'll tell you, yeah, we're looking to write bigger checks, which is also code for I'm going to pass and I'm not going to tell you why. And so in general, venture investors, because they have a fear of missing out, they're not going to criticize you or give you negative feedback or even tell you no, because they're worried if you are successful, you won't let them invest in the future. So they'll just ghost on you which means you get no feedback of any kind, which is enormously frustrating because as a founder, that's what you thats what you want. You're like, if my pitch doesn't work, just tell me what you didn't like. Yeah, Just give me something to learn from. And a lot of these founders walk away not learning anything. And so what you learn is you have to read between the lines. You have to look at the questions the investor asked of you. And from those questions, try to infer what they were thinking and what objections they might've come up with as feedback for mm-hmm. updating your pitch for the next set. It's a very strange game of telephone in which you're trying to guess what they're thinking based on the kinds of things that they're saying, but there's no explicit exchange of criticism and honesty. And by the way, if you find an investor who's very honest with you, you should hold on to them because they're a very rare breed. But that's what makes fundraising so difficult. And why you have to do it so much to get good at it is essentially what you're doing is getting good at inferring what the investor is thinking at each step of your pitch and getting ahead of whatever objections they might have. Mm-hmm. It's a very much a learned set. Something that's very hard for somebody who's used to either, let's say you're a product manager, or engineer, you're used to explicit feedback. If people don't like your feature,
1: they tell you. Yeah. It's your goal to right. go and acquire that feedback and you thrive exactly. off your feedback loop.
0: Yeah. If you're a salesperson, you're used to going to sales meetings and get an understanding objections and doing discovery. And then you go pitch VCs and you're like, oh, this is not like what I know. And it's even former VCs will complain about this. They're like, I just pitched people who I used to work with at that firm. And I still don't know what they think. It's just a, it's a difficult dynamic that exists in the venture market. It's just, it's really hard.
1: That's really interesting. It makes me think of, I don't know if you're familiar with Jim Keen. He was the founder of Wellness FX. I talked to him a couple of weeks back and well, he has the benefit of knowing people that are in VC, but his tip when I asked a similar question was, like, what I always do is ring up people who are really intelligent in this space. And I give them my pitch, not even asking for capital, but asking Mm -hmm. for feedback. And if four or five really smart people hear your pitch, they're really going to flush out all the gaps in your pitch. Great if you have that network, but clearly most people will not have that. So I really appreciate you shedding some insight into what you can do in tips and tools for Yeah, if you're a first-time founder,
0: you don't even know to do that right how would you <laughs> yeah. this is the other part this is my other problem with venture capital imagine any other business where your job is to go to vcs and pitch them and there's no insight into their process they won't share with you what their process is mostly because it's probably not super consistent across the board the problem is there's so much there, there's no way to learn about it if you haven't done it and so it becomes this weird insular industry and People talk about the diversity challenges in tech startups. A lot of that is because if you are not already in the network, there's no way to get in the network to learn about these sorts of things. There's no way to actually figure out and get these sorts of experience, which is, of course, why we're sharing them here in this podcast. But we need armies of podcasts and writings and sharings. The industry is going to continue to be problematic in terms of diversity until there's a way to open it up so people who are on the outside can learn about how the game is played.
1: I love that. Yeah, it's really fascinating. What would you recommend? So if you were a brand new founder right Mm -hmm. now, again, you've gone through that process, you have, you have a, at least a conceptual pitch you're really excited about and you, but you don't have any VC network. You don't have a lot of resources. How would you go about building those relationships for, of course, there's the mentorship side of things, but there's also the, the numbers game of setting up a bunch of opportunities to even pitch. What would you recommend or how would you approach that? So
0: the first is people don't realize is that VCs respond to cold emails all the time, as long as they're targeted. So I would look for people who have invested in companies in the similar space that I'm in. And I would reach out to them with a very specific outreach saying, hey, I'm starting a company doing X. I noticed you've invested in a bunch of other companies and in the similar space. I would love to run by you what we're doing and get your feedback on it. So as long as you're very relevant to an investor and you're reaching out proactively, investors love taking those meetings because they want the inside track. Should you be a good company? They want to look at that for deal flow. And most of the time, people wait to reach out to VCs until they're actually raising money, in which case a VC is, I'm one of a few dozen people you reached out to. I'm just part of a process. So it turns out you can actually reach out cold to people. And actually I highly recommend it. Most of the people, most of the people I know in VC, that's how I met them is reaching out to them saying, Hey, I'd love to hear what you think about what I'm doing. They're not going to spend hours with you, but giving you 20, 30 minutes is pretty common. Yeah, It might not be tomorrow. It might be in a few weeks. So you don't wait until you're raising money. You do that earlier on, get their feedback and ask them questions. Like, listen, when I am ready to raise money, which isn't today, what are the kind of things that you would look for in a company like mine to, to decide this is an investment I want to make. And they'll usually be pretty honest. This is a consumer app. We really need to see 100,000 people using the app before we really take it seriously. Or enterprise software company, we really need to see a demo and a bunch of key customers in your pipeline, or maybe your first contract signed. They'll be pretty honest about it, but you can reach out to them cold. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's no search of issue. Not all of them will respond, but I'll be honest with you. I've reached out to enormously some, somewhat famous people And they've always gotten back to me. I don't think people understand that, but it it means you're reaching out to them, knowing it's relevant to them, very specifically sending out to them. I'm not sending a blast to hundred people, I'm sending it to Bob. And I know Bob invests specifically in AI data companies. He's invested in a few companies in the past that seem like they have an interesting trajectory. This is a topic I'm sure he'll be interested in. Let's reach out and see and make the case. Bob may not respond, but it turns out enough bobs will respond and I can have enough meetings to get enough feedback to be on my way and start to really suss it out. At the same time, I've also, an investor, if you ask, if you pitch them, and the first time they're meeting you during the pitch, you're asking them to make a decision about a point in time. I've just met you. You're giving me a pitch. Do I trust you? Do I believe you? Do I think those sort of things? If I've reached out a few times and I've started to draw a line, They can look at it and say, wow, the first time I met him, he had an idea. The second time he had a prototype. The third time he had his first few customers. He's really moving. Mm. You're making it easier on them to look at this and say, this person's credible. They seem to be onto something. And this train's moving, whether or not I invest or not, it's more likely to be interesting for me than a train that's waiting for the money to even leave the station.
1: I love that. Um, And so
0: don't wait for the money. Just keep, get the train moving. People love jumping on moving bandwagons, by the way, but almost nobody wants to start the bandwagon. It's yep. really, this is true of investors. It's true of co-founders, by the way. A lot of people are like, where do I find a co-founder? And the right answer is you start the company. You get it moving and people will jump on. Yeah. If you're like, I have to find a co-founder to get started, good luck, unless you have really good people in your network that love you and want to do it with you.
1: I love all that. I really appreciate that approach because a follow-up question that I was going to ask you was, What are those, what are some of the core elements that those VCs, what are the questions? What are the concerns? What are the drawbacks? But you gave an even better preemptive answer, which is go ask them essentially and create those. It's all different. That's the thing.
0: If you think about our top VC funds, some of them look at the market size. They want to invest in the winners. Others want to invest in the team and expertise in the area. Some of them have very specific focuses on SaaS as a business model or AI, there's no standardization. There's even no standardization across deals at the same firm, right? The Mm. criteria will change. The process will change. Some firms may take three to four months to make a decision on one company and make a decision on a second company in three or four hours. So the only way to suss it out is to talk to people and ask. Even the answers that we would have gotten now are different than the answers we would have gotten a year ago. And they're very different than what we would have gotten two years ago. So anybody who tells you they have the formula for fundraising, they know exactly how to do it, they're lying because it's a moving target.
1: Yep. Mm, I love that. And another thing that I would have asked, and you also called out it with the line metaphor, is what do you need to reach out to them? But really there's no answer to that. It's you can be you can reach out with just an idea. You could reach out with, I don't know, I guess like a website or a pitch deck or just as like an tagged or attached item. But it actually doesn't really matter.
0: If you think about other industries like Hollywood, if you reach out to somebody, the first, there has to be something in it for them to help you out. That's not a universe that's a little bit too critical of Hollywood, but it's not super far off the truth about how it works. It's very much a quid pro quo ecosystem. The thing that's interesting and somewhat unique about tech is that it's very much a pay it forward ecosystem. So if you reach out to former founders, if you reach out to investors and you ask them for their perspective and their help, they're pretty likely to help you and give you that perspective. They're not going to become your best friend. They're not going to be in your network. They're not going to be advisors, but they are willing to help you. And that is something you should lean into. And that becomes a small stepping stone up to the next stepping stone the next step up until very soon you find yourself in a position of the person who other people are reaching out to. And then it's your choice to decide to pay it forward and help them on their journey. And that's, I can't express for people who haven't worked in industries that are not tech, I can't express how rare that is in most industries, that you can reach out to somebody and they will help you with no expectation of what's in it for them. And by the way, this is not evenly distributed. This is part of the diversity problem. The reality is there is institutional sexism and racism in these things in tech. And if you're a person of color or a woman, you're more, you're less likely to have these people volunteer to help you. Which just means those of us in a position to help, we have to rise to the occasion. We have to raise our game and help those people and lift them up more until such time as tech has demographics where this is no longer a barrier for people. Because it turns out talent and opportunity is not distributed into specific demographics. So if we can get the brightest people from everywhere building stuff, the tech industry only wins.
1: Yeah, love that. Really valuable call out. That's really interesting to me because you... I understand that on surface, the surface layer, it also feels like at least I graduated college in 2017. It seems like there's been this big shift of at least focus on diversity and inclusion. Like Every job you apply for, you're calling out your demographics. I would have just assumed that has waterfalled down into hiring and it's a lot like of that. marketing.
0: i yeah. here's a basic example that blows people's minds. So tech interviews, right? If you're going to hire as an engineer, most companies use the same process of interviewing software engineers. It involves some problem solving, some co-pilot or pair programming and these sorts of things at colleges like Stanford, there's a class you can take on technical interviewing that teaches you how to do well in these interviews. Those classes do not exist at historically black mm. universities and colleges. So if you're coming from a historically black college, you're already a disadvantage against somebody who's coming out of Stanford because somebody at Stanford took a class on how to do all these interviews. You don't have the benefit of all that exists. So people have said a lot about fixing these things, but they've done very little to actually change how they're operating other than jumping up and down and talking about how important it is. Fair enough. Like if it really was important, you'd see some structural change. So I'll give you another example. of VCs talk about wanting to do it, but how many VC partnerships are still just a bunch of white dudes? Really?
1: Probably a and lot. And people
0: jump up and down about pipeline problems. And in reality, in my experience, and this is just my opinion, if you claim there's a pipeline problem, really what you're saying is that your pipeline is so biased, it's filtering out everybody who doesn't look like you, mm-hmm. which is actually true. If you think about it, many people who are hiring are trying to hire somebody who looks a lot like them that would do the job the same way they would do it, that they have in their career, but that's presupposing they have the same life experience as I did, which is gonna be very different from somebody else. It's very rare to find a company that's willing to interview and hire people that would do the job very differently than they would do it, that have very different life experience. People talk about culture fits. Hey, we don't want to go get a beer with this person after work. What if you don't drink? What if you yep. have kids and you can't go out after work? What if? What if you have your? What if you're on the spectrum? And this is not you know, communication, interpersonal communication like that is not how you operate. You're better written communication than verbal. You start thinking about it and realize that everybody's been giving lip service to diversity, but nobody's actually been willing to tear up the foundation.
1: Mm, I love that. Really glad you brought that up because it does sound like it's really impactful, and especially for the next generation of leaders, something I would hope everyone's thinking about how to really break down those barriers. I definitely do want to go back to what we were just talking about, because again, for people who are young founders, I think there's just one stone unturned in in everything you described that is, and I'll just give you an example. So say I'm starting a company that has parallels to Headspace. How would I go and find, how would you go and find those people like super tactically? Is it LinkedIn? (laughs) Is it researching? Can you find online where to, who are the people or firms and who invested? And then like, how would you approach that?
0: Yeah. So first off, let's be clear. There's a few companies named Headspace. Do You mean the meditation app? Or yes. Okay. So the first thing is it's a meditation app. It's for consumers. We're going to look for investors that are investing in consumer-oriented companies. Ideally, we're looking for people who have expressed interest in mental health in the past, people who have invested in, for example, we're not going to go after investors who invest in games, which is another consumer product category, but very different. We're looking for people who invest in consumer. There's a bunch of them out there. So I would look for companies that have raised money in that space, who invested in them. I would also look at not just who invested in them, but who has co-invested with that investor in previous deals. So not just one degree out, two degrees out. And the great thing about most VC firms is people have their contact information on their website and you can just go find it and reach out to them. And everybody's like, oh, nobody will respond. And it is true. Not everyone will respond, but the fact that no one will respond is somewhat cynical, but you're going to reach out very personalizing, Hey, I saw you invest in this company, or you've expressed interest in this category. We're doing this interesting thing here. I'd love to get your perspective on it. And I want to, we're not fundraising right now, but I'd love your perspective on where we need to be in fundraising in the future. And you'll get a non-trivial number of responses. That part is not hard. Now, deciding what to do with those responses is hard because let's say you have five of those meetings, you'll get five different perspectives, all of which are conflicting. And this is where you just have to make a decision and try to, again, read between the lines. One person said, this is interesting, but you really have to prove the market, prove the market's big enough. Okay, that's one thing. Someone else says, oh, I love this market. This is great. But the hard part is acquiring customers. You have to have a really unique go-to-market strategy. Okay, that's different, but I get it. Third one will be like a lot of competitors in that space. How are you going to stand out among all of those competitors? Okay, that's different. So I have all these different p- opinions. How do I decide which of those is right? How do I decide where, do I agree that competitive competition is the biggest problem? Do I agree that customer acquisition is the biggest problem? Do I agree market size is the biggest problem? Let me go address one or all of those, both in my pitch, but also in my business, right? Your go-to-market strategy, it's related to your product. Your competitive positioning, related to your product. These things are all interrelated. And then you take that signal, you do your best to organize yourself and design your solution to navigate that pipe. But at least you've heard all the objections that are probably likely to float around and you can get ahead of them. So you're no longer trying to read the tea leaves and decide somebody said, I'm too early. What do they really mean? Yeah. At least we figured out what is the set of things that may have been the reason they actually passed.
1: I love that. Awesome. I know that is super tangible, super tactical feedback that I'm sure most of the listeners will go into play. So I really appreciate you sharing that. We're coming to the end here and I want to just give you an open-ended question to hopefully flush out anything that could be really valuable. So you obviously put pour a ton of your energy into creating content for people who are starting technology companies or companies in general. You work with a lot of founders outside of what we talked about today in depth, what are the, let's call it the top three mistakes or stumbles, challenges that, or even the things that cause people to succeed versus fail in their startups? What would you call out and how would you address those things?
0: Number one is they fall in love with the solution. They immediately start building the product that they envision, and then they try to make that product work. They try to force it to work. Don't do that. Fall in love with the problem, come up with lots of solutions and follow the demand on the market to what solution to follow. Don't fall in love with the solution. That's number one by far. Number two is conflict on the team. Most companies in my experience fail because of internal conflict. Make sure you set expectations early on. In my opinion, Mm -hmm. expectation setting or poor expectation setting is the root cause of all conflict. You have a co-founder, great. Sit down and have a real conversation about how long you want to work for free. How long do you think it will take to find product market fit? How long are you willing to let it take to find product market fit? Are you good with dealing with stress? How do you deal with stress? Have you ever, what do you do when there's a lot of money on the line, right? Do you have any idea what that looks like? Do you want to sell the company to have enough money to buy a house? Or do you want to sell the company for enough money to own a building? Having a really explicit expectation setting discussion is critical. So at least you know where everybody is and you can get that on the table. So there's no sorts of weird conflicts that arise later. Be really patient as a result in choosing co-founders and early team members. Do it very slowly. Don't jump at the first person willing to join you. Make sure you know how this person behaves under stress. How does this person behave when there's a lot of money on the line? Because people change. People you think you know really well will be very different if there's a lot of stress and a lot of money on the line. Mm. And it's very scary. And the third one is that the world is not out to get you, but it is agnostic as to your success. Meaning that the world is not easy. It's not pushing for you, but it's not holding you back. But often it feels like it's holding you back. There's nobody out there pushing for you to win, except for you. And in fact, it feels like it's almost impossible to get things going. The more you do this, the more it feels like a miracle any company succeeds. And in some ways it is, because failure is the most common outcome. So if you're out there and you're starting to have those dark days and you're staring into the abyss and you're like, I've worked so hard and nothing's working. Is it me? Am I the problem? No, you are not the problem. It is just really hard. And many of the most talented people I know that have worked the hardest have not found a way to make it work. And some of the people that I know that have gotten the luckiest are not the people you think would have been able to figure it out. Here's the deal. It's hard. It's hard for you. It's hard for me. It's hard for everyone. Anybody tells you difference, lying. The press covers these stories. And often the founders go back and rewrite history. They make it sound like this was always the plan. Or I was a visionary from day one. You know what? They were grinding it out just like you. That's how it is. It's hard. And people don't talk about how hard it is. So when founders find that it's hard, it starts to eat you up. That stress, that doubt, all of the rejection, the constant rejection, starts mm-hmm. to core you out from the inside, and what it leaves you with is a bunch of mental health problems. Yeah, and I can't help you with those, but what I can <laughs> tell you is, in those dark days, you are not alone. That what you were experiencing is what the journey is like.
1: I love that. Really, and I've even seen this in my own journey as well, where it's the difference between attaching your self worth and your value to your success versus your strategy. Okay, it's not me. I'm not broken. I'm not garbage can I just be more flexible in my approach or even literally burn this business down and start something different if you get enough feedback, but it's not you and you're not broken or incapable.
0: Exactly. So many founders think that giving up is a sign of weakness, that if they stop trying, that that's how they fail. The reality is if you don't have the option of walking away, what is that? You're just... You're not an independent thinker. You don't have agency anymore. If you have no choice, but you've bound yourself to this company and you have to make it work. That's not a formula for success. I'm not saying you should pull the ripcord at every, the minute it gets hard. It's hard and it's going to be a hard journey. But at some point you have to be okay with saying, you know what? It didn't work. I'll try again.
1: I love that. Awesome. Want to give you a chance in a moment to share where people can find you and engage with you and more of your content and resources. Prior to that, for people who really love your frame on raising capital, starting businesses, everything you've shared today, what are some other resources that you really enjoy, whether it be a podcast, a book, really even just something else that inspires you? More people can carry this thread and go learn from some other sources that have been really impactful for you. So
0: Brad Feld has written a series of books that I think are really good. One is on venture boards, the other is on Startup fundraising, I recommend them because they're very practical how-to guides. They demystify things like a term sheet. What do all the terms mean? A board meeting, how do I even run a board meeting? These these sound very practical things. He's done a great job. Brad Feld, there's a whole series of books he's written. I highly recommend them. There is a book called Traction, which I recommend, mostly because it goes through a bunch of, I think 14 or so companies that were successful and talks about how did they get their first customers. And you read that book and you walk away realizing that, man, it was hard. And boy, do you have to be creative. It, it pops the illusion that success comes easily. And the third is there's a book called Flow, the, the, what was it? The Psychology of Optimal Experience, which is a large longitudinal study about what makes people happy. And it turns out to be a fantastic business book because what makes people happy is your ability to lean into your strengths. And it's a book that I highly recommend because if you read it, It opens your eyes to how to be more productive and happier at the same time. People joke about, people argue about work-life balance all the time. That book makes it clear that kind of dichotomy is not what you need to think about. The question is for you, how do you become the most productive version of yourself?
1: I love that. Amazing. Awesome. Last question for people who want to engage with you, definitely recommend your newsletter, but where can people find you? Different platforms, different websites. What's the best way?
0: My newsletter is The Breaking Point. It's just breakingpoint.substack.com. My podcast is The Startup Help Desk, thestartuphelpdesk.com. On the podcast, we answer questions from founders. They just submit them and we have a whole panel of people, founders who debate the answers. You get multiple perspectives. My newsletter is mostly my experience, my frameworks, but it's also popular. And you can find me on Twitter, just S Burns. I'm out there. I like to help people. So if you need help, just find me. I also website seanburns.com if you want to find me there.
1: Awesome, Sean. Thank you so much for your time. This has been incredibly insightful for myself and I know for our listeners as well. So really appreciate Thanks. the time and can't wait to hear from our listeners in terms of all the success they've found as they go deploy these strategies or at least their resilience as they deploy <laughs> the mental tools as well.
0: Sounds good. Thanks for having me.